Greetings, Carrie. I enjoy your podcast and your author interviews very much. And I wish you happiness and much success, and we'll keep looking forward to uh, new interviews and book reviews. Thank you. Happy spring. This is Diane L. Thank you. Welcome to Words to Mouth, an author interview talk show where readers meet authors beyond the printed page and win free books. I'm your host, Carrie, and I produce this show to introduce you to new and seasoned authors and the books they write. You can get more written and recorded interviews at my companion website, wordstomouth.com. But today I'm pleased to have with me Joshua Hankin, author of Matrimony, which just recently came out in paperback. Should I call you Josh? Josh is great, yeah. Okay, welcome, Josh. Thanks, Carrie. Have you ever had a nickname? No, I mean, you know, my parents called me Joshua, and apparently my mom always hoped that I would never be called Josh, but... Then when I was in fifth grade, I insisted on being called Josh, and it's been Josh ever since. Of but course. on the book, on the book, it says, it says Joshua. Oh, there you Joshua go. Hankin. There you go. So, so Matrimony is your second novel. Your first was right. Swimming Across the Hudson. Why don't we start out by hearing just a little bit about you? What would you tell somebody if, if you wanted them to uh, grasp what's important to you and get to know you as quickly as possible? What would you tell them? I mean, as a person or as a writer in terms of the book or... Well, more as you as a person and what, you know, what's important to you, what you're about. Sure. Um, I grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, and I still come from an interesting and unusual family. Um, My father was born in in Russia in 1917. I'm 45 now, um, and he's 91, so he got married and had kids late. Mm -hmm. And he came to the United States when he was five, and he was the son of a famous Orthodox rabbi, and he grew up on the Lower East Side. And his father lived in the Lower East Side for 50 years and never learned any English. He just spoke Yiddish. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother is a secular Jew and comes from the, the Bronx, a very different part of New York. And so I grew up in this kind of home full of contradictions. Uh, my father, you know, remained largely Orthodox throughout his life, although he ended up, you know, being in the secular world. He went to Harvard Law School and ended up being a law professor at Columbia. Um, my mother's a lawyer, too, but she, was, she stayed secular. And so we had some combination of sort of Orthodox Jewry and secular Jewry uh, in my home growing up. Uh, I have two brothers; we're all pretty close in age. And I feel like the you know the, you know I went to Orthodox Jewish day school and the conservative Jewish movement summer camp, and then I would spend other summers in Colorado uh, riding horses where I was the only Jew around. Hmm. So I feel like in some ways I grew up in this home of contradictions, and I feel like that's really you know that's fodder for fiction writer. You're looking for the interesting contradictions. Yeah, and and so I guess the assumption that you would most likely be like Julian, who's the the main character in your book, it's not necessarily true, huh? Right, it's not true. I mean, Julian, like me, is a writer, and he grew up in New York like I did, and our names begin with J. But beyond that, we're actually we're actually quite different. I mean, he comes from a super waspy background, in a lot of ways, I'm probably more similar more similar to Mia, the main fiction, the main female character in the book in terms of my background. She's Jewish, I'm Jewish, she's the daughter of an academic, I'm the son of an academic. Well, why don't, why don't we step back for a second and tell us a little bit about how you became a writer in the first place. Sure. Um, I mean, on some level, I always wanted to be a writer, um, but I also always wanted to be a basketball player. And at some point, you realize that you're neither you know, tall enough nor talented enough. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I thought about writing, that I always wanted to do it, but just didn't think that I really could. And I, was, I went to Harvard for college, and I was studying sort of a more traditional academic discipline. I was studying political theory. And I thought I was going to get a PhD in political theory because being the son of a professor, I had this very 
screwed up idea about what a, a safe career was, and I thought that that would be safe. Right. Um, but before I went to get my PhD, I moved out to California to Berkeley for what I thought would be a year uh, before I went to graduate school, and I was working for a magazine. And one of the things I was doing at the magazine was I was reading fiction submissions and all the good submissions I was supposed to pass on to the fiction editor. And I was struck by how many terrible submissions there were. And I didn't feel I could necessarily do any better, but I did feel oddly inspired. I thought if other people were willing to try and risk failure, then I should be willing to try and risk failure too. And that's you know, inspiration that I take with me to this day because the writer always you know, faces the prospect of pa- failure every time he or she sits down. To write, but in any case, working at that magazine got me to starting to take some workshops, and I went, then I went to Michigan to go to graduate school in creative writing, and sort of the rest is history. Mm-hmm. And what's your and you want to talk about your day job? Sure. Yeah, I teach creative writing um, mostly at Sarah Lawrence College to undergraduates and to MFA students, mm-hmm. uh, and I also teach in the graduate program at Brooklyn College. So I teach writing workshops, sort of, you know, in the way that Professor Chesterfield teaches writing workshops in my book. But I like to think of myself as you know a kinder teacher than he is. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But um, but basically, you know, that's what I do in terms of my work. I write and I and I teach writing as a way to supplement my income. Right. So why don't you give us an idea of matrimony's plot without giving too much away? Sure. Matrimony follows a marriage. It follows a couple that meet uh, in the late 1980s in a fictional college based loosely on Hampshire College. Um, they meet when they're 18, 19 years old, freshman year, in the college laundry room. And it really follows them over the course of the next 15, 20 years as they experience, you know, various successes and various failures. Um, one of the, without giving too much away, one of the characters' mothers um, gets very ill at some point in the book, and that really changes everything for the characters. And it really follows them as they move from college town to college town. Julian is trying to be a writer. Mia's hoping to be a therapist. Um, but beyond that, I'd say metaf- more metaphorically, the book is what it's like to be in your 20s, 30s, in some cases early 40s when you're waiting for your life to begin. And at some point you realize that life has already begun and life is what happens when you're not paying attention. Mm, that's great. Well, and you, it, it took you about 10 years to write the book. It did. Really so, long time. So when you started out, I mean, I could make the assumption that the, the message that you wanted to convey to the readers has changed, but has it or what do you think? Well, I guess what I'd say, first of all, is I don't think that, that fiction conveys messages, or if it does, then it's not good fiction. Okay. To me, the example I give is that um, a friend of mine in college wrote her psychology thesis on how adults group objects versus how kids group objects. And adults group the apple with the banana, and kids group the monkey with the banana. And that's a way of saying that kids are more natural storytellers than adults are. Mm -hmm. And I think what I have to teach myself as a writer and teach my students also is to think more like a child again, albeit like a smart, sophisticated child. Mm -hmm. So when I read a novel... I don't have to like the characters, but I want to feel at the end of the book like I know them as well as or even better than the people in my own life. And if a book does that to me, then I feel like it succeeded. And if I can do that to my readers, then I feel like I've succeeded. And to me, the way to do that is not to map things out in advance, not to have any messages. For me, messages are for political theorists and for economists and for priests and rabbis and sociologists and politicians. But that what fiction writers are doing, or at least the kind of fiction writer that I am is doing, um, is that we're trying to make characters come to life and tell a story. But it's certainly true that, you know, when I started the book, I was 33, single, living in Ann Arbor. When I finished the book, I was 43, married, with two small daughters living in Brooklyn. So a lot changed in my life. And, you know, I threw out more than 3,000 pages over the course of those 10 years. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why it took as long as it did. But certainly it's the case that 
you start a book at 33 in one stage of life and end it at 43 in another stage of life, you have different preoccupations, and you sort of have to try to make it seem like a seamless whole, and that's part of the, you know, the major revision process. Well, step back a second and just tell me what inspired you to write the book in the first place. Yeah, you know, it's very hard to know. I mean, it, it's sort of back to that apple banana, monkey banana thing. I think, I mean, in the most literal sense, I finished my first novel, Swimming Across the Hudson, and it was time to write a new one. And so, you know, this is what I do. I, I write, you know, it's, a, it's my job like anyone else has a job. And, I, you know, when I sat down, I thought I was going to write about a love relationship and that it was taking place at a college reunion. And naturally, it turns out to be in part about a love relationship, although it's about other things, too. There is a college reunion in the book, but it doesn't come until about page 270 and the last fall of six pages. So very early on, it was clear to me that I didn't have a clue, which is, I think, how it should be. I mean, writers can think they have a clue, but they want to be wrong. You know, I started with the first line, out, out, out. Those are the first words that Julian ever said. Mm-hmm. And in some way, that the, the book, you know, the book built from there. Gabriel Garcia Marquez once said that once he has the first paragraph of a novel, everything else follows. And I think if you look at the first paragraph of Mar- Matrimony, you can see the whole novel incubating in it. But that doesn't mean that I had, any, I had any clue what I was doing when I did it. I think that certainly the first draft of fiction is very much a dreamlike state. And, you know, you don't, you don't want to be thinking too much. So you basically just want to tie yourself to your chair day in and day out and then hope for the best. So it sounds like you're pretty disciplined when you say tie yourself to your chair. So you, what is your writing, what is your uh-huh. writing, writing day look like? I, the other way to look at it is I'm not disciplined. I need to be tied to my chair. And oh. to chair. <laughs> um, I just mean that I think people who think that writing is about inspiration don't write. And if you wait for inspiration, it doesn't come. And I think there's inspired work and uninspired work, but it often doesn't correlate to how you're feeling when you sit down to write. So for me, it's very important to treat it like a job. And um, I try to write as close to every day as possible. I tell my students that even if they have no time, better to write 10 minutes a day, six days a week, than to write an hour on a Saturday. Because if you're writing every day, you live with your characters and you think about them. You know, when you're not writing, and that really helps you. Um, you know, on teaching days, it's harder for me to get work done. On non-teaching days, um, I spend more time writing. I try to write in the morning whenever possible just because it's sort of like exercise. You don't want to hang it over your head if you're playing. There's nothing worse than knowing you're supposed to write and not writing. So I try to get out of the way earlier. Um, given unlimited time, say, you know, in during vacations and over the summer, um, for first drafts, I really can only do three or four hours in the course of the day. For revision, I can sit much longer. I can sit for 9, 10, 11 hours if I need to. So do you think your students know how fortunate they are to have a teacher like you? I can already tell you're an excellent one. I'd love to sit in class. Oh, that's very nice of you. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I think they know that I, that I work hard and I take their work seriously. And I think there's no, there's no one teacher who's perfect for every kind of student, and I'm certainly better for some kinds of students than others. But, um, but I do, I mean, you know, teaching doesn't pay super well, and, you know, so you, you only do it if you really care about it. And I guess also for me, teaching is very connected to writing because I certainly have friends who are more naturally intuitive writers than I am. And I can say to them, well, look, you did that. And they don't even, they, they have more of a kind of look my no hands sort of approach. They don't even realize, mm-hmm. you know, that they did what they did. But for me, you know, when I started working at that magazine, when I was first reading fiction as a writer, I feel like for me, the process was really figuring out what wasn't working in other people's stories and trying to make and trying to help them make it work and trying to take those lessons from my own stories. So I feel like I have to teach myself to be a more intuitive writer. So in, in very deep ways, you know, teaching helps me, you know, helps me with my work. And then also it's social, and I'm a relatively social person, and writing is very isolating. So 
And I think I, I appreciate my students at least as much as they appreciate me, which I, you know, I feel is how it should be. And, you know, the, the, the job of a professor is also excellent for a writer because you've got that flexibility like you were talking about with the summer. Definitely. And my wife is a professor, too. And it's very good because we have small kids. We have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And, and we can often, you know, drop them off at school together. I mean, we certainly put a lot of hours in at work and we get our kids to bed uh, relatively early in part because we think they need sleep but also because we need to prepare for, for class the next day. But I certainly appreciate the flexibility of, you know, except for actual classroom time, not having to be anywhere at any given moment. Right. Well, let's get back to matrimony. Tell me what your favorite scene is oh, in the book. Oh, God, I don't know. And maybe what? Basically, I mean, it's very hard for me to, me to know what you know what scene is a favorite, but I, I guess the scene when Julian and Mia first meet uh, in the laundry room freshman year of college, and the sort of that scene and the scene afterward, that's the sort of when they're first, first getting together, the young love. Um, I certainly enjoyed writing that scene. And there's some scenes with Julian and Carter early on when he, Julian and Carter go camp, go camping together that I like a lot. But also, I think it's hard for a novelist to sort of to look at individual scenes apart from the whole, and you know it becomes an entire project. So I think it's maybe easier for readers to think about scenes that are memorable to them. There's scenes from later in the book that that I'm drawn to as well. Is there anything that stands out that was most difficult for you to write? Um, I mean, everything was difficult. You know. It took 10 years throughout 3,000 pages, but, you know, nothing was easy. I guess right. if I had to say the two principal, the two biggest struggles I had were, first of all, you know, how do you, matrimony covers 20 years of time. And so thinking about time was a real struggle for me. You know, how do you write about 20 years without turning it into a boring chronology of this happened and that happened and that happened? And I was rereading Richard Russo's novel, Empire Falls, which is a novel I love. And although it's quite different from matrimony, it really helped me think about time in an interesting way because Russo is very good at sort of skipping time and pausing for scene and then folding in information through backstory. And once I reread that book, certain things about the structure of, of matrimony came together, how I could skip a bunch of years, stop, and fold in material and flashback. That's one thing. And then maybe even as much as that would be the issue of writing about a writer because Julian is a writer, and writers are told that they're not supposed to write about writers, that to do that is self-indulgent and navel-gazing and, you know, you're supposed to run with the bulls in Pamplona and be like Hemingway and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But to my mind, that's, that's nonsense. And, you know, if a student of mine asked me, you know, if she wanted to be a writer and she said, is it better for me to go hike in Nepal for a year or spend a year in the library um, reading the classics? Uh, although I certainly think hiking in Nepal is a fun thing to do. If she wants to be a writer, I would certainly urge her to spend a year reading the classics instead of hiking in Nepal. But I do think there's this idea that writers shouldn't be writing about the writing life or about the academy. And so even though I was doing that all along, an earlier draft of the book, the novel, was much more farcical, much more comedic. I was sort of doing it with a wink and a nod because I was being very self-conscious about writing about a writer. And at some point I said to myself, you know, this is ridiculous. If I was writing about a doctor or a lawyer or a secretary or a chef or a mobster and my character took their work seriously, then I would take their work seriously. And so why shouldn't I do the same for a writer? And as soon as I allowed myself to do that, to, to write it more straightforwardly, to write it more honestly, more directly, the tone of the writing sections changed, but really the whole tone of the book as a, as a whole changed and allowed me to write more toward my strength. So I would say those are the two principal struggles I had over the course of the 10 years. Well, how about giving your student the advice of taking the classics with her and go ahead for that hike? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't catch that. I said, why not give your, your student that advice to take the classics in her backpack oh, on, on the hike? They could, <laughs> and certainly. And I mean, it's, not, it's not a mutually exclusive 
enterprise, but I my know. sense is that your average person who's hiking in Nepal isn't reading isn't reading yeah. that over it. But you know, sure. Yeah. Well, you mentioned struggles, and um, I try to let listeners see a glimpse into authors beyond you know beyond the book. Is there? Would you be willing to share any particular struggles, either professionally or personally, that I don't know? Maybe just let us know what maybe you've learned from going through something that you might have seen as a failure at one point. Um, I guess I start off by saying that I've been incredibly blessed in the sense that you know I grew up in an upper middle class home with happily married parents in New York City. And um, I'm happily married now, and I've been fortunate to be healthy. So I, I wouldn't say that there haven't been struggles. I mean, we all struggle, certainly. Um, but I consider myself certainly luckier than most, that I'm able to you know, make a living as a writer and a teacher of writing, which are things I love to do. I mean, I think certainly, you know, during the time of writing matrimony, you know, I said before I started at 33, and I finished at 43. And I was living in Ann Arbor when I started. And so I was living in a college town, which, you know, college towns tend to sort of foster a kind of, you know, rest of development. And I'm sure on some level I had marriage on the brain. I met my now wife uh, shortly after I started writing Matrimony. So I think, you know, even though I would say that Julian and Carter and Mia have in certain, certain objective ways struggles that I didn't have, and they're, they're quite different from me, uh, in other ways I feel like, you know, our preoccupations are similar. They're not based on actual people, but if they showed up at a party where I was, it would make sense that they were at, at that party. Um, so I, might, I would say I have my demons like everyone, like everyone else, but it's hard for me to point to like a single, you know, seminal event. You know, the way, say, in matrimony, Mia's mother's getting sick is a major life-changing event for her. I've been fortunate not to have right. that happen to me. I mean, right now my father is 91 and it has dementia, so that's very hard for him and for my mother and, and for our family. Um, and so that, that's a struggle we're going through right now. And not not to minimize that, on the other hand, he's... You know, he lived a very long and healthy life until you know a couple of years ago, and so he was very fortunate, even if things are unfortunate for him and for us right now. I just the, I guess an interview. It's probably two before this one is called Still Alice. Are you familiar with? I that mean, book? I know I, I've heard of it. Um, yeah, I haven't read the book, and it's, it's, isn't that yeah. about someone who has Alzheimer's? Yeah, but it's it's early onset, but it's an excellent book, and she's got a lot of great resources in there. It's, right. You know, I, you know, my heart goes out because that is right. difficult. Right. I, I understand. I have, my father-in-law is 89, so it is difficult. You know, every age has its blessings and curses. And right. <laughs> and they say that 50, 50% of people 85 years old have Alzheimer's. So, I mean, it's really it's part of the product of our living longer than we used to. People who used to die at 70 of heart, of heart failure end up living longer, right. and then, you know, they're, they're met with, with a different kind of misfortune. Right. Well, I wanted to mention real quick that Josh has offered a free copy of Matrimony. So listeners, go to wordstomouth.com. It's words with an S, T-O, mouth.com, and leave a comment under this interview post or call 206-309-7318 and leave a voicemail comment, and you'll be entered to win. You must be subscribed to my e-newsletter to find out who wins the book, though, so be sure to do that. Well, let's see. I wanted to ask you a couple more questions before we go. And one of those questions you touched on um, for a second, but I wondered if if I only give you one name, if you can only have one name, who would you, and I know that's difficult, but who's your favorite author? Uh, <laughs> I you know maybe I'd say John Cheever. He certainly was the most influ- influential author for me, short stories. Favorite, maybe Nabokov, Fitzgerald. Uh, that's, that's more than, that's more than, that's, that's more it, than one. You? I know, but... <laughs> it's like being asked, to, it's like okay. being asked to choose among your children, Virginia Woolf. I mean, that's not, there's so many. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, what are you reading right now? Um, 
you know, a lot of what I read these days is on 8 by 11 paper by my graduate students, and so I have to, you know, squeeze in the time to, to read other stuff. But I've read some novels recently that I've, that I've liked a lot. Um, I read a novel called Cost by Roxana Robinson, who's a wonderful writer, and that's a novel about a family that has to deal with a, an adult son who becomes a heroin addict. I'm reading a very mm-hmm. short novel by the Australian writer Helen Garner, which I really like a lot. It's about a woman whose friend comes to visit her. The friend is dying of cancer, and the friend is, is sort of hanging her hopes on all sorts of sort of quite crazy kinds of alternative treatments, and it's sort of about what that does to their friendship. Um, you know, other books that, I, that I've read over the last bunch of years that I've really liked a lot. I love Laurie Moore's short stories. Um, Robert Boswell has a novel called Mystery Ride, which I love. Which my, there's a character in there named Dulcie, whom my wife and I named our dog after. Um, yeah, she's a really amazing character, and, and our dog's great. Um, I like, as I said before, I like Richard Grusso's Empire Falls. Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections I liked a lot. Um, Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. Those are a bunch of books that you know have made an impact on me over you know recent years. Okay, well, I'll put those in the show notes. Um, tell listeners what your uh, website address is. Sure, it's just, just my name. It's joshuahankin.com. That's J-O-S-H-U-A-H-E-N-K-I-N.com. And I just did want to say something about that, which is that one thing I've been doing in the wake of matrimonies coming out is that I've been participating in a lot of book club discussions of matrimony. I've probably participated in more than 100 book club discussions now, either in person, on the phone, or online. And for any book club that wants to discuss matrimony and would like me to participate, there is a link on my website for book groups, and you can get in touch with me that way. Um, or they can email me directly at jhenkin at s is in sam, l is in larry, c is in cat, dot edu. And I'm happy to talk with, to whatever book groups want to discuss matrimony. And that's actually how I found out about you is through a group called Manic Mommies. And I think I can go ahead and link to the interview that you did on on that book uh, book club site. Absolutely. So I don't think it's exclusive. I'll go ahead and try to do that in the show notes as well because there's a lot of information in there. But I would um, caution people to make sure they read the book first, obviously, because spoilers. there's some, some spoilers. Yeah. Okay, so, well, what's next for you? Is there anything else you'd like to, to offer before we go? Well, I'm going to tell people a little bit about what I'm working on now um, because it's overdue okay. at the publisher, and I'm, you know, I'm working hard Uh-oh. at it. Um, it's a very different novel. It's tentatively called The World's Without You, and it takes place over a single July 4th weekend, whereas matrimony takes place over 20 years. And it's basically about three adult sisters in their sort of mid to late 30s and their spouses slash significant others and in some cases kids who return with their parents to the family's country house in the Berkshires for July 4th weekend, the occasion for which is the fourth anniversary of the brother's death. And he was a journalist killed in Iraq. And when he died, he left mm. a pregnant wife, who subsequently gave birth to a son, who is now, you know, a little over three years old. And the wife, the widow, moved out to Berkeley and went to graduate school in anthropology. And she has now met and fallen in love with another man whom she might someday marry. And even if she doesn't marry him, she'll likely marry someone else at some point, and that person could adopt the son. And so she returns to the reunion with the son, but not with the boyfriend. And the son is in some way the object of struggle. You know, for his grandparents and for his aunts, he is the grandson slash nephew, and most important, he is the embodiment of that brother. For his mother, although he is that too, He's really principally her son, and she's moving on. And so the book is in some way about the different ways that people handle grief. And, you know, fiction is very committed to the idea that there are no generalizations, so different characters are different. 
but at least in the case of my characters, I think they find that it's easier for a spouse to move on after having lost a partner than it is for a parent to move on after having lost a child. And the book is told in alternating points of view from different, like, different characters over the course of that weekend. It sounds wonderful. It's all in the execution, so we got to hope. Uh, my, my hope is yeah. that it won't take 10 years to finish. I think it'll take me probably <laughs> another you know, a couple of years. But I'm, I'm about 200 and something pages in, and it's going pretty well. And because it's more focused in terms of time, I think I'm able to look at the whole, see the whole in advance and a little, little even more easily than I was able to do so in matrimony. So let me ask you this. Do you think that you're at all perfectionist? Absolutely. I think writers have to be. <laughs> I think you can't, yeah. you know. Not all are. But I think anyone who's any good has to be. I think it's so so easy to get it wrong. I mean, I can spend hours just changing a few words of dialogue here, changing the order and a couple other phrases, and it makes the, whole, the, the feel of the entire scene change. And it's not just me procrastinating. I certainly know how to procrastinate, but I mean, this, I, mean I, I, I do this with my students a lot. I'll give them a scene and tell them they have to rewrite it, just changing a few things, and the content has to stay the same, but if they change the rhythm of the words, they can feel how different it is. And so I, I feel like all a writer has is words, and you have to be a perfectionist. I guess the only thing I'd say is that the key is not to be a perfectionist too early. You know, Julian and Henry, when they're in Iowa in matrimony, have this conversation about writing and whether you should revise immediately or revise later. And I think it's Henry who says that if you revise too soon, it's like playing with, like you're building a house and you're playing with the ornamentation on the doorpost before you've actually right. built the foundation. And so my inclination is to revise too soon, but I think it's really bad because I think you need to really get the whole book out before you go back to revise. So one thing I've started to do to sort of make an end run around my compulsiveness and my perfectionism is to write by hand because my handwriting is really sloppy. And I think when I type something on a computer, because it looks neat, I feel more compelled to make it neat in a deeper way. But when I'm writing by hand because it doesn't look neat, I don't feel compelled to make it neat in a deeper way. So this allows me to sort of to not stop being a perfectionist, but to recognize that perfectionism has its time and that for first draft, you really want to move forward and not look back. Oh, my gosh. You know what? That is awesome advice because I've, I've started probably three novels, and I have that same tendency to go back and keep revising. And um, I was just thinking about that this morning because I went back and read in my journal – and you do, you just write and you don't even, you know, necessarily, I don't at least, I don't sit there and critique what I'm writing. So that's, that's awesome advice. Right. I, think, I, think, I think a lot of us are that way that we tend to revise too soon. And I think it's helpful yeah. to a lot of people. Yeah. Well, do you, I mean, is there any advice that you've been given that um, you would consider um, worthy of passing on to others? Yeah, I guess I would say is, you know, write, write, write and read, read, read. I mean, I think that you know, don't go to parties with writers, or if you want to go to a party with writers, fine, but don't think that that's how you become a writer. I think the, you know, the, the best teacher of writing is other books. I think, you know, people should imitate the writers they admire, and that, you know, that's, the way of, that's your, the way of achieving your own voice. I mean, people have too much anxiety of influence. They don't want to read other people because they feel, feel that they'll be influenced, but I think influence is really important. And I think that, you know, those who persevere, there's no guarantee of success, but I certainly feel that the ones who succeed are the ones who will do it even if they don't succeed. And that sounds like a contradiction, but I think it's not. I think it's the ones who feel like they have to write, and they do it for the work's sake. Those are the ones who have the best chance, really. Well, the book is amazing, and now I know why, that you've worked so hard on it, and uh, you make it look... And we faded to gray. 
Yep, we got cut off. I called Josh back and we decided, you know what, the interview is coming to a close anyway. And uh, what better way for us to close it out than me telling him he's amazing. So anyway, go to wordstomouth.com. That's words with an S. T-O, mouth.com, and go to the interview there and just leave a comment underneath the post and you will be entered to win a copy of Matrimony. You do need to be subscribed to my e-newsletter because that's how I let everybody know who wins. So if you haven't done that yet, go ahead and do it. And uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do so. That way you'll get the interviews delivered to your computer for free and you can just go there and access them when you want. I wanted to mention to y'all, I have just started a new promotion on Words to Mouth. Um, We have a lot of notable authors, but there's some authors out there that are excellent writers. They just have not had the opportunity to get a lot of promotion. So I've put together this program where um, authors can kind of piggyback off the notable names on words to mouth and get some attention. Um, So if you're an author or you know an author that's looking for uh, some promotional opportunities, gear them towards that promotion services page on my website. And it's really a win-win for everybody. It helps me balance out my time and effort. It helps to obviously promote authors. And it gives the listeners and readers a chance to get to know some authors that you might not have uh, gotten to know. So I will, what I'm going to do is I'm going to differentiate between the blog posts that are uh, paid promotions and the audio interviews that are paid by a little button on there. So, you know, keep the integrity of words to mouth intact. And up top where you have the featured authors, those will always be the the more notable names, the complimentary uh, author interviews. So hopefully you agree that it's going to be a win-win situation for everybody. And I'm very excited about another project that I'm working on with a friend of mine, Tom Royce. He does a lot of the the behind-the-scenes work on words to mouth. He's very technical, and I am not, so it works out well. We put together a project called HopeForAuthors.com, and that's H-O-P-E-F-O-R Authors.com. And right now we're offering a free ebook. It's about 50 pages. So um, what we've done is pulled together a lot of the different Web 2.0 tools that authors can use to promote their books. And so if you're an author or you know one, please encourage them to go to hopeforauthors.com. And what I'm doing right now, I'm in the process of interviewing with a number of different people in the publishing industry from editors and Uh, publicists, literary agents, publishers, even the self-publishers and experts in social and digital media and brand marketing folks, anything that can assist authors in promoting their books. We're putting it together in a CD uh, package and we'll be letting you know about that in the in the coming weeks. So check out hopeforauthors.com. As always, I thank Natalie Brown for her song, You Gotta Believe, from the Podsafe Music Network. And I appreciate you all so much. Take care. Until next time.
No matter. 